before so much paralyzing terror. The sadistic leader of the bloody brood, whose only philosophy is anything goes. What's up, weirdos? And welcome to the Weirdoverse. I am JD Ross, your personal chauffeur through everything and anything that is weird. And you are listening to Weird Wide. Thanks for tuning in and getting weird with me. Today, we're celebrating the pinnacle holiday of the fall season, Halloween. And for Weird Wide's first ever Halloween special, I thought we'd just go hard as fuck. Today, we're getting right into demonic territory. Today, we are covering Ed and Lorraine Warren. Ed and Lorraine are considered by many to be the real life equivalent of the Ghostbusters. They were involved in some of the most high profile hauntings in world history. But some aren't convinced. There are some skeptics out there that believe they were charlatans and that their claims were all just made up nonsense. Well, today we're gonna explore the lives of Ed and Lorraine, some of their more well-known hauntings, and we're going to see what some of the skeptics have to say before we close out. So let's meet Ed and Lorraine Warren. Ed Warren was born Edward Warren Miney on September 7th, 1926 in Bridgeport, Connecticut to Frank Miney and Pauline Dennis. Lorraine was born Lorraine Rita Moran, about 20 minutes away in Monroe, Connecticut to parents James and Georgina Moran. Now, before Ed got into the business of demonology, as he later would, he served in the U.S. Navy in both the European and the Pacific theaters. Lorraine had an early introduction into the religious realm, attending Laurelton Hall, a Catholic girls' school in Milford, Connecticut. Returning home, he would marry Lorraine, who was his high school sweetheart. How sweet. And they were married on May 22, 1945, in his hometown of Bridgeport. Now, the Warrens didn't begin in the world of demonology and hauntings right off the bat. They were actually on a much more creative path originally. After Ed served in the Navy, he immediately went to art school where he'd learned to paint and they began selling his paintings. It is kind of funny. Dude went to school to learn how to paint, but was a self-taught demonologist. It's not very common. Now it was around this time that Lorraine began to recognize her clairvoyant side. She actually had probably noticed it uh, to some degree before, but it was around this time that Lorraine really started to tap into her psychic abilities. Lorraine was a self-professed light trans medium. Uh, now, a medium is someone who is able to communicate with the spirit realm through clairvoyance. A trans medium specifically is the type of mental medium that remains conscious during the communication and allows the spirits to communicate via their mind and kind of lets the spirit on the other side project their message to the medium, who then speak them aloud. Uh, the medium is generally able to differentiate between their own thoughts and messages and the spirit that's projecting as thoughts. Uh, obviously, many skeptics have come out to say that all manner of contact with the spirit realm and mediums and clairvoyance is a big old load of malarkey. But who knows? Now, realizing her gift would be what would lead them to begin a business of paranormal investigations early on. This is uh, pre-Ghostbusters when the idea of people coming into your house to deal with ghosts wasn't even a registered thought in the American zeitgeist. 
Now, because their new undertaking was so unusual, they had to get a bit creative to drum up business. So while the Ghostbusters went with a low-budget TV commercial approach, Ed and Lorraine went in a direction that I have to say is pretty creative. So they were making money selling the paintings that Ed was doing and would eventually begin using those paintings to actually gain entrance to haunted places. From what I could tell, they would basically drive around until Lorraine got a psychic whiff about a place, right? Ed would then paint the house. They would then knock on the door and present the painting as a gift to the homeowner. And from there, they would work up what I assume would be a sales pitch uh, on about their place being haunted. Man, we live in dramatically different times anymore. Like, I'm suspicious of anyone knocking on my door, unless I'm waiting on a pizza or something. Uh, can you imagine some couple just showing up on your doorstep with a painting of your house, give it to you as a present, and then start in with, oh, this house? This house right here? Oh, this is one haunted house if I ever seen. You know, we are in the uh, paranormal eviction business, by the way. Here's my card. There's no way in hell that would fly today. You would immediately think someone is up to some kind of scam or some weird plot to murder you. That wouldn't get past the painting part in 2022 for me. You painted my house? Who the fuck are you? Get off my property. <laughs> Pulling out my phone and fucking recording them and shit. I'm putting your scamming ass on the internet. Get out of here, you fucking crackhead. Go get. Get. But this was different times. This method actually worked. So they would rinse and repeat this method until they made their bones in the paranormal world. This is proof of hustle, weirdos. This is proof of hustle. Don't ever let anyone tell you that you can't do something. These two built an entire ghost hunting career out of door-to-door -door painting gifts. They tried something, and it worked. So try your weird nonsense. So as they made a name for themselves, uh, their exploits began to become much more well-known in circles of that where that kind of thing actually mattered. After a while, their door-to-door -door medicine show, they became uh, kind of go-to in the community, and people actually started reaching out to them. They'd be called to wherever there were outbreaks of weird shit or strange activities by like clergymen, other mediums, and Catholic priests dealing with all manner of cases. Uh, even some early on where uh, priests actually become possessed. In 1952, Ed and Lorraine founded the New England Society for Psychic Research, which is the oldest haunting group in New England. Uh, actually still exists today as an occult museum and a fully functional paranormal investigations group. You can still actually give them a call and get them to come out and uh, check out your weird shit. According to their website, Tony Spira, who married Ed and Lorraine's daughter, Judy, works to carry on the legacy that Ed and Lorraine established. From the founding of the New England Society for Psychic Research, the Warrens would go on to a full career that would make them legendary in the paranormal community. All right, so now that we've met Ed and Lorraine, let's take a look at some of their more famous highlights of their decades-long career. Let's talk about Annabelle. So the evil doll that was made a household name in the Conjuring universe is based on a real doll. Now, Hollywood made the doll look a lot creepier than her real life counterpart. Uh, the real Annabelle, the real life Annabelle is uh, kind of disarmingly normal looking. Uh, I have read that she is bigger than you would expect, though. That's about it. So it all began in 1970 when a mother bought her daughter Donna an antique Raggedy Ann doll as a birthday present. Donna was in college for nursing and was close to graduation at the time and lived in a small apartment with her roommate Angie, who was also a nurse herself. Donna kept the doll on her bed as a decoration and went about her day. Well, it only took a few days to notice strange occurrences surrounding the doll. So the doll would be sitting a little bit differently than when they'd left it. Uh, sometimes the doll would be found like with her legs crossed, arms folded. Other times it would be just found upright. 
standing on its feet. Uh, little things at first, but soon it was like progressively a lot more noticeable. Donna and Angie would come home and find the doll in totally different rooms several times. Donna would leave the doll on the couch before leaving for work and then would return to find the doll in her room on the bed with the door closed. I don't know why the door being closed adds like that extra touch of creepiness, but it really does. Now, about a month after the weirdness started, it got kicked up a notch. Suddenly, the doll was able to write messages. Donna and Angie began to find creepy messages written on parchment paper around the house. Uh, and they would say things like, help us, or help Lou. And they would, <clears throat> and they kind of looked like they'd been written by a child. The really weird thing about it is they didn't have any parchment paper in the house. Uh, in fact, it wouldn't have been a common household item in the 70s. Parchment paper started to be replaced by regular paper as far back as the 15th century. Um, by the time of the 20th century, it was almost completely phased out. Uh, besides, it's used for like religious communities and artists and things. Uh, and I bet there are probably some hipsters to this day that are only about the parchment man. Look at you now. So, yeah. So by the 70s, there wouldn't just be parchment paper in some random nurse's apartment. No one really knows where it came from. How creeped out would you be at this point? Like this kind of shit would really start to mess with your head. So one evening. The doll moved again. Donna came home to find it on her bed. To a certain point, she was starting to get used to it at this point, but this time something was different. A trademark of these kind of hauntings is the escalation. So it never stays, it never just stays at minor creepy shit. Donna noticed on the doll's hands and chest were what appeared to be drops of blood. This was the final straw for Donna and Angie. Uh, they decided it was it was time to call in a professional. So they got a medium involved uh, who held a seance, which is where a group of people attempt to contact the dead. During the ritual, Donna and Angie were introduced to a spirit claiming to be named Annabelle Higgins. Annabelle claimed to have been a little girl aged only seven who had lived on the property that stood there before the apartments they lived in during what she called the happy times. Annabelle said that she felt a certain connection with Donna and Angie and she wanted to stay and just be loved. Now, weirdos, just a bit of advice. If a spirit of a dead girl ever starts haunting you and then asks if they can stay with you and just be loved, do not fall for that bullshit. Donna and Angie let their compassion get the better of them and told Annabelle she could inhabit the doll. Big mistake. Now, let's meet Lou. Lou was mentioned on the parchment paper, and he was a friend of Donna and Angie that was kind of hanging around a lot. Lou had been around since they brought the doll, now known as Annabelle, home, and he immediately hated it. Lou felt from the start that Annabelle was evil and on several occasions told Donna to get rid of it. But Donna didn't listen, and after it introduced herself, uh, she was even more connected to it. One night, Lou woke up in the middle of the night from a bad dream in a full panic. Lou had been having bad dreams ever since Annabelle had come home. But this time, he felt like he was in kind of a state of dream paralysis. Like he was awake, but he couldn't move. He looked down, and he saw Annabelle at his feet. Fuck that, dude. Fuck that. Now, Annabelle slowly began to move up his leg until it reached his chest, where it began to strangle him. This is seriously some Chucky shit before Chucky was even a thing. Could you imagine... 
waking up paralyzed and some demonic raggedy and all starts choking you the fuck out fuck that so lou blacked out and he woke up the next morning convinced that it had really happened lou was freaked out and lou was even more determined than ever to get rid of the doll now the next day lou and angie were getting ready to go on a road trip and were looking over maps and planning their drive this was before gps and ways uh you actually had to look at paper maps like a fucking savage Anyway, they heard a noise upstairs that sounded like someone was breaking in. So Lou immediately rushed upstairs to Donna's room where the sound had come from. Now the room was empty except for Annabelle, who was sitting on the floor in the corner. Lou looked around the room, but he found nothing else. But as he got closer to Annabelle, he started to kind of feel a presence behind him. So he spun around, right? There was nothing there. But suddenly, he found himself grabbing his chest and doubled over on the floor appearing out of nowhere and described as feeling like hot burns seven distinct claw marks appeared on his chest three vertical and four horizontal and bleeding through his shirt now they healed almost immediately half gone the next day and were fully gone the day after that it was after this that donna was like yeah it's time to do something about all this nonsense i'm starting to think annabelle isn't the sweet and innocent little girl ghost that she says she is so she decides to get spiritual on this little bitch she gets in touch with an Episcopal priest named Father Hegan, who immediately is like, yeah, this is above my spiritual pay grade, uh, and passes on to another priest called Father Cook. Father Cook was higher ranked in the church, and he immediately got Ed and Lorraine on the scene. So after speaking with Donna, Angie, and Lou, the Warrens came to the conclusion that the doll wasn't necessarily possessed, but rather was being manipulated by an evil entity. Spirits of this nature do seek to possess a human and will sometimes attach to a place or an object, uh, and in this case, it attached to the Annabelle doll. It then sought to get the attention of the residents, which it did, and once they got communication rolling through the first medium they brought in, the spirit got permission from Donna and Angie to stay. Totally played them. They didn't even realize that by giving the spirit the green light to stay, what they actually did was sign a spiritual contract that would lead to the next stages of the haunting. If a ghost ever asks permission to stay, you tell it to get packing. Go on, get! Ed and Lorraine deduced at this point that the next phase would have been possession of one of the three, and that one or all of them would have met their death if it had continued for just another few weeks. So Ed and Lorraine decided it was time for an exorcism. They had Father Cook, who was less than comfortable acting as an exorcist, recite the Episcopal Exorcism, which is a seven-page document that focuses on good, uh, which is in direct opposition to the demonic spirit spirit's nature. And they look to kind of fill the home with positivity and such. A lot of the power of Christ compels you stuff. Now, to prevent further trouble with Annabelle, Ed and Lorraine took the doll with them after the exorcism was complete to make sure that it was safe from harming anyone else. But the journey home was a perilous one. The spirit trapped in the doll was some kind of pissed off at Ed and Lorraine, and they said that it was like a palpable hatred. They could feel the hatred from the doll. You know, like when someone doesn't like you and like you can definitely tell they were feeling that from the doll. They decided to avoid the interstate going home because they figured it'd be a lot less busy. And their suspicions were proven right. They narrowly avoided several collisions going home, with Ed even throwing holy water in the backseat and making the sign of the cross at the doll until they safely arrived home. Talk about a tense road trip. Now, Annabelle would do a lot of freaky shit. You know, she would like levitate, go from room to room, uh, would often end up sitting in Ed's chair specifically. It fucking hated the clergy. 
Uh, one time a Catholic exorcist named Father Jason Bradford was visiting and he taunted Annabelle, which uh, Ed immediately was like, don't don't do that. I wouldn't do that. On his way home, Father Bradford's brakes failed going into a busy intersection and he almost died. Lots of weird shit started happening like that with the doll. And they had a special case built for Annabelle and put into their occult museum uh, where she resides to this day. One non-believer did decide to fuck around and find out. And find out he did. Visiting the museum, he started banging on the glass, challenging the doll to scratch him. He was kicked out of the museum. And on the way home on his motorcycle, he and his girlfriend were laughing at the idea of the evil doll when suddenly he lost control. And he rode full speed into a tree. He was killed instantly. And his girlfriend was hospitalized for over a year. Did Annabelle do it? We'll never know. Now let's take a trip to Amityville, sleepy little town in Suffolk County, New York, about an hour and a half east of NYC. Amityville actually bore a surprising amount of notable people for being such a small town, including actor uh, Alec Baldwin and bass player Rick Fox of Wasp, who, if you'll remember back to the PMRC episode, Wasp became an infamous member of Tipper Gore's Filthy 15 with Animal Fuck Like a Beast. Amityville is vastly more famous for another dark and sinister reason. On November 13th, 1974, Ronald DeFeo Jr. murdered six members of his own family. His parents, Ronald Sr. and Louise, and his four brothers and sisters, Don, Allison, Mark, and John, by shooting them all in the back of the head with a 35 caliber rifle. DeFeo, who was only 23 at the time of the murders, attempted to cover his tracks by rushing to the local bar called Harry's and making a big scene. You gotta help me, my parents are dead. Well, he was taken to the local police station for his own protection, uh, and he even tried to claim that the murders were committed by a mob hitman named Louis Fellini, uh, but it didn't take long for the inconsistencies of his story to fall apart. And the next day, he actually confessed to the crime, saying, once I started, it all went so fast. He admitted that he, he had even taken a bath and redressed before making the scene at Harry's. Um, police found the rifle, cartridges, and DeFeo's blood-soaked clothing. The hitman Louis Fellini, he even had a solid alibi as he was out of state at the time of the murders. DeFeo was sentenced to six consecutive life sentences. And that was that. That was just the start. 13 months later, on December 18, 1975, George and Kathleen Lutz moved into 112 Ocean Avenue, the now famous house in Amityville. George and Kathleen loved the house, and for $80,000, they thought they were getting a fantastic deal on it. Uh, as far as that goes, uh, this might piss you off a little bit to know that in 2010, that house sold for nearly a million dollars. The housing market can suck my balls. Now, as the Lutzes were unpacking, a Catholic priest came to bless the house which to me as a non-religious person does seem odd. Uh, like, who the fuck are you? Like, get off my property. I have to assume it was from their congregation the Lutzes had attended or something like that, and not just some rando priest all, hey, here to bless your place. Hmm. Anyway, so the Padre is blessing the house, and he's flinging holy water around in the bedroom that used to belong to Mark and John DeFeo, when a disembodied voice said, Get out! Which he very promptly did. Wouldn't you? The priest neglected to mention the voice, but on his way out, told George and Kathleen not to use that room as a bedroom or let anyone sleep in there. And they listened and turned it into a sewing room. 
this is why I'd be fucked up in a situation like this. Like if a priest told me not to use a bedroom, especially without a solid explanation, my stubborn ass would be sleeping in that room that night. Like, fuck you. You can't tell me what to do. Now, almost immediately, they began feeling weird sensations. And a few days after moving in, they had these really intense personality shifts and they were like arguing constantly. George was suddenly always cold. Uh, and he was spending all his time by the fire just trying to keep warm. Uh, but he was unable to. He could not get warm. Both George and Kathleen began letting themselves get all disheveled and gross, and their health started oddly declining. Uh, George and Kathleen's daughter started spending all of her time locked, in her, locked away in a room with Jody, her new imaginary friend. Jody was described as a red-eyed pig who could shapeshift and also change her size at will and couldn't be seen by anyone unless Jody wanted them to. The house started a reek of random odors that had seemingly no source. Uh, black stains would appear on the ceramic fixtures and toilets. And Kathleen was being touched by an unseen force. And then this green slime just started, like, oozing on the walls. Uh, at one point, a swarm of flies would appear in the room that the priest said not to use, uh, even though it was, like, the dead of winter uh, in New York. So it was cold as balls. Shouldn't have been any flies. At a certain point, you got to be thinking, man, $80,000, this shit may not have been worth it. And the next weird thing to happen is George started waking up at 3.15 a.m. every night, uh, which is about the time the police think the DeFeo murders went down. George claimed one night that he uh, awoke and saw Kathleen suddenly transform into a grotesque old woman. And another night, he would see her levitating in bed. They tried to get their priest involved, but when they tried to call, the phone lines wouldn't work. And since they couldn't get the priest on the line, they walked around the house with a crucifix shouting the Lord's Prayer, and a mass of unseen voices started yelling back at them to stop. Fuck that, dude. It seems like doing that only pissed off whatever was in the house. And the final night they spent in the house, there was banging and rapping all through the house. And the furniture was like just moving around all on its own. This was all they could take, and after 28 days, just 28 days in the house, they grabbed what little they could, and they got the hell out of Dodge, and they went to stay with Kathleen's mother in a nearby town. So about a month after the Lutzes fled, a reporter for Channel 5 New York named Marvin Scott got Ed and Lorraine involved. Scott had worked with the Warrens before, and he'd also covered the DeFeo murders. Ed and Lorraine assembled a team of investigators and parapsychologists, and they all met at 112 Ocean Avenue. The Lutz family fucking refused to go back in. Now, while Ed, Lorraine, and their team investigated, Ed would use uh, what he called religious provocation to get the activity moving in the house. That's when, like, you know, they started shouting, like, invoking the name of God, like, you know, doing things like that to try to get a response. Uh, he was, like, immediately pushed to the floor by unseen forces. Lorraine was overwhelmed by a sense of demonic presence and kept seeing psychic images of the deceased DeFeo family laid out on the floor in white sheets, uh, as well as a feeling of kind of being like pushed, like there was like, like kind of a pushing sensation. The research team also captured a creepy image of a spirit of a young boy peering at them from the second floor. Uh, the research team also found that uh, a practicing black magician named John Ketchum had a cottage on the land that the house stood on and was buried there before the house was built. Presumably, his remains are still buried there to this day. The house still stands. 
The land was also used by a native tribe called the Shinnecock for uh, housing the sick, dying, and the mad. So a lot of fucked up history on that tiny parcel of land. The Warrens believe that uh, all that history of suffering left the property with an excess of negative energy and therefore was a magnet for the demonic, which directly impacted the DeFeos and the Lutzes in different ways. The Warrens grabbed a handful of personal items for the Lutzes, who then relocated to California. They straight up said, fuck this, and put an entire country between themselves and that house. Like I said, the house does still stand today, uh, and the residents after the Lutzes have reported no strange occurrences, which does get of a, give a bit of fuel to the skeptic side. What do you think? All right, let's take a look at one more case the Warrens were involved in. This is a strange one, and I'm uh, kind of surprised it's not a little bit more well-known. The Smurl haunting. For over a decade, Jack and Janet Smurl were tormented by spirits. After a flood forced them from their house in Wilkes Bar, PA, Jack and Janet moved with their daughters and Jack's parents to a duplex in West Pitson, PA. Now, the house needed some work, uh, but the Smurls were okay with that. And at first, the haunting episodes were minor. Tools would go missing, little mischievous things like that. Uh, weird stains would seep through fresh, paint, fresh coats of paint, little things like that. Kitchen appliances would catch on fire, even though they were unplugged. And there would be random bad odors that would uh, seep through the house and then just kind of dissipate. Now, first, things were going great. Jack got a promotion at work, and the kids were doing well in school, and Jack's, in, and Jack's parents were happy. But their fortune was not to last. They ran, out of money, they ran into money troubles and soon were struggling to make ends meet. And soon after that, Jack's mother, Mary, had a heart attack. Well, the paranormal started to intensify as well. Weird black masses formed and would float through the house. This is where the weird shit really picks up. Bit of a trigger warning for the rest of this section. Now, Janet was being sexually molested in the middle of the night by an unseen force. Uh, Jack awoke one night hearing whispering, uh, what sounded like a younger woman, uh, and turned to see uh, and turned to Janet to see a shadowy figure running up her leg. Mm. Shit got really messed up in the house from there. A light fixture fell uh, from the ceiling, cutting one of their daughters. The family dog was picked up and thrown into a wall. Fuck, dude. Janet at one point uh, started levitating and was dangled six feet or so in the air before being tossed across the room. Uh, and this part is this part is particularly fucked up. Uh, Jack was watching baseball one afternoon when he claims that a succubus materialized in the room, threw him down, and started raping him in his living room while the baseball game played. Neighbors would even claim that when the Smurls were out of the house, they would hear screams coming from inside the house. They got the Warrens involved, and after inspecting the house, Lorraine concluded that there were a total of four entities in the house. An old woman, a young and possibly violent girl, a man who had suffered and died in the house, and a powerful demon that exerted power over the other spirits and used them to harm the Smurl family. Subsequent residents of the house have claimed to have never experienced any form of paranormal activity. Now, these three events are just a handful of cases that the Warrens were involved in. Uh, many have called their exploits a hoax. The Smurl family's account uh, has been accused of being fabricated for book and movie opportunities. Uh, many have said the same thing about the Amityville haunting. 1997, Steve Novella and Perry DeAngelis of the New England Skeptical Society interviewed Ed and Lorraine. 
Side note. Uh, and this, maybe this is just from my personal point of view as a seeker and one who tends to go on the fantastical side of being a believer. Seriously, what stick in the mud Buzz Killington motherfucker started the New England Skeptical Society? Someone founded an organization to go, nah, that shit ain't real. I'm sure they're real fun at parties. That's the type of people that went out of their way to be the hall monitor in school. Anyway, Stephen Perry said that they found the couple to be pleasant, but that their claims of demons and ghosts were at best as tellers of meaningless ghost stories and at worst dangerous frauds. Their conclusion after taking the museum tour was, and I quote, it's all blarney. You know what, Stephen Perry, using the word blarney when you mean bullshit, that's hall monitor shit. And I just feel like these two are like the guy in Ghostbusters, Walter Peck. Wasn't there for any of the shit. But just shows up all now. Nah, that's a bunch of blarney. So what do you think? I mean, do you think that Ed and Lorraine were on the level? Was it all legit, or did they make a successful lifelong career of playing a hoax? Uh, I want to know your thoughts on it. Email me at weirdwidepodcast at gmail And that's about the end of the story. You know, there's plenty of other uh, cases they were involved in. Ed died in August of 2006. And Lorraine died in uh, April of 2019. Uh, currently, their son-in-law, Tony Spira, does keep the uh, cult museum uh, going. So it does keep their, you know, like I said, up top, keeps their legacy going. There's a bunch of other cases we could cover. Uh, but this is just a handful. This is just a few. So, again, I want to know what you think. Let me know what you think. Email me. Uh, leave a comment below if you're watching on YouTube. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Leave a review on iTunes. Five star if, uh, if you like what you're hearing. And I hope everybody is having a wonderful fall. I hope everybody's having a wonderful Halloween. Uh, party up. Have a good time. Don't fuck with spirits. Don't fuck with ghosts. You know, because if they were right, you know, the shit's real. And uh, you don't want to fuck with that. You know, you don't want to ruin your Halloween by fucking with some ghosts or demons or anything like that. So happy Halloween. Join me next week for another installment of Weirdness. And until then, keep it weird.